banded together by a mutual yearning for the more simplistic times and random fun of the comic books of yesteryear. Alec Berry and Scott Gardner now travel back. Back to the bins! Hello everyone, my name is Alec Berry. And I'm Scott Gardner. And welcome to the third episode of Back to the Bins. We each have one book tonight to talk about, and uh, I'm just going to throw it off to Scott, and I'll let you start. Ah, oh, you just put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> That's what okay. I'm here for. Oh, I know it. All right, this one here is a little-known character that, I don't know, a lot of you have probably never heard of this. It's put out by Marvel Comics. It was called The Incredible Hulk. Have you ever heard of this? No. I think you're just making it up. I've never heard of this. It's pretty cool, man. It's this big green dude, and he's pissed. So this yeah. is issue number 243 from January 1980. This is, I, you know, I've read a lot of Hulk over the years, and I've got, you know, quite the run of Hulk, but this is an issue that just somehow or other had, had slipped by me, and I had the opportunity to pick it up on the cheap, and it's sweet. It's in gorgeous condition. It almost looks like it's never even been uh, read before. So it's got a nice cover by Al Milgram, who's not usually one of my favorite artists. I mean, I don't dislike him or anything, but he doesn't usually jump out at me as terribly dynamic. But I really like the cover on this one. It's the Hulk, and he's, like, smashing up this big tower that looks an awful lot like one of the Monitor's towers from Crisis on Infinite Earths. And the guy he's battling on this, I thought, was that electrical dude, Zax, or whatever his name was. But it turns out in the story that this is actually... Uh, the guy Tyrannus, I th think that's his name, Tyrannus or Lord Tyrannus, one of the two. Uh, yeah, Tyrannus is his name. And you come into this story, there's no recap or anything, and I was completely lost, just thrown into the middle of this story. But actually, that's kind of fun sometimes. This story starts out, and there's this gigantic explosion on the first page where the Hulk and, surprise of surprises, Goldbug, who I thought was a Spider-Man, uh, you know, Spider-Man-only villain, Goldbug is in this, and the Hulk and Goldbug are being tossed about by this explosion. They are in the fabled land of El Dorado, of all places, when this great big explosion starts, and uh, there's this giant monitor-esque tower, and they're falling off the, the tower as the tower blows up, and it goes into this just weird story where the Hulk has screwed up some plan of Tyrannus's, and now Tyrannus has been turned into like this living flame thing that's attached to the tower. And when the Hulk starts to tear the tower down, it's like messing Tyrannus up and hurting him and stuff. Well, Hulk just decides to just destroy the tower outright. And when he does, Tyrannus is like jettisoned off into space as like some living comet fireball type of thing it's a really it's fun but it's a really strange story i had a lot of trouble following what was what was happening there's just no recap at all to, to get you up to speed on this he uh, as he streaks off into the sky uh he catches the attention of one of the um celestials who's on earth and i had forgotten this plot with the celestials where they came to earth yeah and they were supposed to be on basically a 50-year survey mission to where eventually they were going to judge the human race. Yeah, that's and, ironic because I just, I, I just, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I oh just... Oh, no, go ahead. 
I just read that seven issue uh, Eternals miniseries by Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr., which came out uh, I think in two thousand and six, and they referenced to that event. But uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so has it. the has the judgment happened yet? Then. Well, in in the current Eternal series, uh, from what that mini and then it spawned into the current series is. The Dreamer a Celestial, I believe that's what he was called, he kind of uh, awakened, uh, he was buried underneath the earth and he awakened and, uh, basically his, uh, awakening, uh, predicts the, the arrival of the Horde, which is kind of like this monster, uh, cloud of just destruction that's gonna come destroy the earth, and I, you know, the Eternals had to fight that off, but I never really found out what happened. Ah. Cause see, as I was reading this, I thought, you know what? You know, I, I hope somebody remembers this and picks this up later. And, you know, when we get to the year, you know, whatever year is 50 years out from when this idea came along, that somebody remembers this yeah. and, and picks it up and, and, and does the whole judgment story and is able to make it make it work and all that. I thought that would be really interesting because I, I like little things like that where somebody, you know, like, like a Kurt Busiek kind of guy who's really into the minutia of comic book trivia will remember that thread and pick it up later and, and run with it. So I hope that that happens somewhere down the road if it, if it hasn't already happened. So anyway, Hulk and Goldbug, you know, th- this is kind of a, you know, it's not a spectacular issue. It's a lot of fun. You know, this is uh, what I, you know, the, the Hulk of this era is what I politically incorrectly refer to as Tard Hulk because he's written like a complete moron. This was not my favorite kind of Hulk. I, I prefer, I really liked the Hulk that came later, you know, about a good hundred issues later, you know, where he was the gray intelligent he was kind of like the the evil bastard side of Bruce Banner's personality i that's my favorite hulk so the idiot hulk was never you know he he's cool on the power level side because he's the most powerful version of the hulk but he was just kind of a bore a lot of times to read because he talked in that you know just stupid way that he had you know hulk you know Hulk need a hamburger or whatever. Just it never did it for me somehow. But the rest of the plot in this is pretty cool. You know they uh, they manage to, somehow or other they get teleported away from El Diablo back to New York City, and Goldbug escapes from the Hulk. You know through the sewer system, only to get nabbed by um, Power Man and Iron Fist. This book is chock full of little cameos like that, and I really got a kick out of it. Uh, my favorite moment of the issue, though, was Hulk trying to uh, come up from underground out of the sewer system, and the uh, manhole grating is too small for him. So he just rips up the whole screen, <laughs> stares the hell out of everybody. Um, some nice, uh, you know, nice little guest appearance in here by uh, by Betty Betty Banner, who looks completely different. Um, she's got uh, got red hair, uh, of all things. She looks odd. I never had seen her with red hair before, and. Uh, Later on, um, Glenn Talbot is reintroduced. Something has happened to Thunderbolt Ross, and uh, Talbot has been brought in basically as his replacement. So this may be the first time we've seen him in quite a while. The, the way the story's told and the way it unfolds makes it look like this is the first time we've seen him in quite some time. Um, Alan Quartermain's got a little mention in here who he came back into play, you know, in the era of Hulk that I'm more familiar with, right around the... Uh, 
the burn stuff and then later on when uh Todd McFarlane became artist and was, you know, getting all the notice. But what I really liked about this issue, what it really made it for me, and man, I wish they did stuff like this in modern comics. There's a two page basically it's right in the middle of the book, two page spread, beautiful art. With just, you know, there, there's no real story per se. It's just a lot of panels, a lot of art, and a lot of, like, narrator box exposition basically telling you all of the Hulk's adventures that are going on in um, Defenders issues 68 to 74 and Daredevil number 163. It's basically right in the middle of this story. All these other adventures happen and it's tying it all into continuity so that you know exactly where in the regular Hulk book he's able to go have all these other adventures in you know the other book that he was a member of at the time which was Defenders i think that's cool and man I, you know comics used to especially marvel comics used to do a lot of that sort of thing especially i can remember Spider-Man titles, like like uh, spectacular Spider-Man was really good about doing it would actually tell you you know like you know, three weeks later, you know, you, you'd be right in the middle of a story and like Peter Parker would, you know, he'd change back to Peter Parker and go to class. And then you'd flip the page and, it would, you know, the caption box, you know, three weeks later, you know, and, and it would pick up the story and there'd be a little uh, editor's note, you know, in the intervening three weeks, you know, go check out Marvel team up such and such. So you knew that other adventures were were happening and you knew where basically everything fit into the timeline. I, I miss that in comics so much, you know, that you're just kind of lost now as far as, you know, where does this take place? How do these things all fit together? They don't really seem to take that love and care anymore to, to clue you in on things. I mean, they don't even give you references to other stories anymore. You know, everything's kind of like a little private in-joke that you either get it or you don't. And that's kind of sad, especially for new readers or readers like me who may read most everything that comes out, but <laughs> your memory stinks and you can't remember where you read something. <laughs> so I miss those notes. But anyway, that's uh Hulk 243. I got a kick out of it. It was a lot of fun. Some good old school comics. And uh, Tyrannus is one goofy looking monster. That sounds like a, that sounded like a really good read. Like that's just like, I don't know. That's, that's whenever I think of kind of old school comics, that's kind of the story I would have thought of. Uh, of the ones I've reviewed so far, this was the one that hit closest to the mark of what I, I felt like, you know, when, when you pitched this idea to me of, of fun, old comics, this was the one that really stood out as, you know what, this is what this was. It was just a fun, old comic. It was a little silly. It was a little kooky. It had some action. It had some, you know, some cool cameos. You know, it tied back into continuity and stuff. And, it, you know, it was just fun. And these are the kind of comics that, that this show is all about, in my opinion, is is the kind of comics that, frankly, I just don't think we get this kind of comic much anymore. You mentioned sort of uh, kind of the continuity aspect in it. And it is really different today where I think the companies, at least, they're kind of more interested in telling just – they're kind of just interested in telling good stories and they're kind of just letting editorial almost go to a little bit of waste when they should be kind of – I have this problem with DC a lot is that, uh, you know, for DC, I think they should be kind of, uh, whenever I kind of think heavy comic book continuity, it is DC Comics, and I really don't kind of see that today. But, yeah, I mean, that is a, a major difference from sort of your old school comics and today's comics, and that's what I always loved about going back and reading older comics is that 
you know, I love editor's notes. I don't care how annoying sometimes they can be. I just, you know, I think they're, I just think they're a blast of fun. And that's a book, uh, Amazing Spider-Man right now does plenty of editor note, editor's notes, which I love a lot. But yeah, that's kind of one of the, uh, the kicks that I always get out of reading older books. I'm glad that uh, there's at least some book out there that's doing that then because I, I've noticed that trend a lot in modern comics that, you know, especially in like the event books, because everybody reads the event books more or less. So some big thing will happen, you know, some, you know, I'll just make something up, you know, say there's an event, you know, final night crisis, right? comes out and you know dirt man gets whacked in the head and he's in a coma and then everybody's like wow you know he's out of action well then in you know some obscure title that you don't read you know he comes out of the coma and he battles somebody and he gets killed well if that never gets referenced in the next event book or some other book that you read without those editor's notes you you don't know that and so this happens to me all the time where some Something will happen. There'll be a post on the forum, or some somebody will tell me that something happened. And I'm like, well, wait, where where did that happen? I never heard anything about it because there's no editor's notes like there used to be to refer you back, you know, to follow this story up or to find out what happened or whatever. Oh, that that kind of thing just drives me crazy. I like to I like to be referred. I like to know where to go to check this story out rather than just have the companies assume that you read every book they put out and you're totally up on it all because you can't be. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get what you're saying. I think, I think kind of the companies miss out on even, you know, a chance to market some of their other books that might not be selling as well because it could be referencing, you know, Hey, Deadpool gets shot in the head in this issue. Uh, you know, find out why in this other book they could reference that and you would go buy that book most likely. So, yeah, right. I, I definitely get what you're talking about. Right. Well, all right. If I'm going to move on to my selection. Uh, this is just a one-and-done comic that um, really just kind of the cover caught me. It's uh, The title was Heroes for Hope, starring the X-Men. And on the cover, there's a little blurb that reads... All proceeds from this comic book are being donated to famine relief and recovery in Africa. And it's also got a beautiful cover by Art Adams, who is a great artist. But um, the basic premise of this book is it's a big 48-page special where I think basically every name, major name in comics at the time uh, came on and they all collaborated on this one single X-Men story. I mean, you've got, you know, I'll name some of the creators, writers. You've got Stan Lee. You've got Stephen King. You've got Alan Moore. You've got Chris Claremont. You've got Denny O'Neill. you got Jim Shooter, Archie Goodwin, Steve Englehart. Uh, pencilers, you've got John Romita Jr., John Bashima, Brian Boland, Frank Miller, Bernie Wrightson, Steve Rude, Herb Trimp, uh, Howard Chaikin. I mean... You know, and you mentioned Al Milgram earlier in the episode. He was an inker on this book. I mean, it's basically got it has everybody in this uh, in this comic, and they're all um, basically doing one or two pages to form the larger. You know, each each creator team is paired to get one or two pages, and it all you know works to form one large story. And um, first, when I kind of read the premise, I was kind of worried that maybe it would kind of it would lose its consistency over different pages, and it would kind of feel a little jarring uh, throughout the plot flow, but I really didn't feel that at all. I thought that the art styles really uh, matched pretty well. I thought that the writers, it seemed like they really um, collaborated well on this. The story flowed quite nicely. I never really felt lost at all. 
another thing that I like about this book is that, you know, you always mention comics today, how they're basically three or four bucks and it takes you ten minutes to read them. Well, I mean, old comics in general, the regular 22 pages, they take, you know, they, they last you a lot longer because there's uh, much more dialogue and a lot more going on. It's They're more story-driven. And then you throw in that this thing's 48 pages. This thing took me about 20 to 30 minutes to actually get through it. And uh, I like that quite a bit, especially, you know, paying only a buck for it. So definitely a great thing there. But uh, the basic story of this is that the X-Men are at the mansion kind of chilling. And uh, one day they kind of, they start um, having sort of these psychic attacks. These They have these visions of basically they're realizing their worst fears, you know, you have uh, Kitty Pride being able to not be able to like phase her way out of a uh, a dangerous situation. Colossus uh, loses his armor and becomes vulnerable. Magneto finally, and yeah, that was interesting. I never knew Magneto was actually on the X Men team before, so I thought that was pretty interesting. But um, he realizes uh, he kind of has a dark dream where he does rid the world of all humans, but all of the humans rise from the dead and basically attack him. Uh, Nightcrawler is faced with issues of his faith. Uh, Wolverine faces faces issues of not being able to control the animalistic side of him. Uh, just a lot of you know a lot of just their basic fears as characters, and uh, they they can't understand why this where this psychic attack is coming from. But through uh, uh, Jean Grey's daughter, I f- can't remember her first name exactly, but she f- she's able to trace. Uh, where it's coming from, it's, it's coming from a uh, third world country in Africa, kind of tying back into the theme of the book. And it's from this this demon creature who is just, uh, you know, he's he's tormenting the X-Men really for kind of, uh, it brings him joy and it basically uh, allows him to survive. That's what he has to do to survive, is torment people with their greatest fear. And uh, when the X-Men get to this country, they find all these starving children and people, and they're just dying. And they realize their worst fear as a team is that uh, they may save people each and every day, you know, from supervillains. But this is just one sort of thing that they really can't fix, uh, is starvation and famine. And that's really their greatest fear. And uh, the demon creature that is attacking them uses that uh, those horrible vibes to grow stronger and fight the X-Men for one last time. But they are they are able to defeat this demon uh, through one virtue, and that is hope, which ties back into the title, Heroes for Hope. And they're able to defeat the demon, and uh, they try to plan to uh, feed these people and save them. And another thing I thought was very interesting is the basic two basic themes in this are fear and hope. And you know, what other comic event did that ever tie into? The Sinestro Corps War—that's the yellow and green course. So I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, just overall, I thought this was a really good one and done sort of special. It, it was a really good story, and I'm not I'm not a big X Men fan at all, but I just I got a really good kick out of this. It, I mean, it's you know we're always we were talking about simplistic sort of just fun storytelling with your Hulk book, but this one uh, it was a fun story, but it actually did kind of have some underlying message and underlining uh, themes with it, and I thought that was really neat. There's a three page. Frank Miller got three pages with Wolverine, and I really liked his art on that. It's it's Wolverine sort of uh, Logan is separated from the Wolverine persona, and they're basically f- squaring off in a fight, and eventually they combine, and he accepts his uh, his destiny to be Wolverine. The John Romita Jr. pages are uh, 
there's sort of early JRJR that he doesn't really have the style that he's developed uh, as of today, which I guess that's good because it shows his progression of an artist. But I really enjoyed this. Just uh, I don't know. I think if you ever come across this, you you should read it because it's just one. It's a good one and done story. I think I have this book and haven't ever read it. I I, I think I know I have it. I just can't remember. If I read it, I just don't remember it very well. But uh, yeah, right, right around this time, I think this might might have been right around the time of Live Aid, yeah, which uh, was an event you know that was on MTV, I believe, you know, yeah. where it was basically like every rocker who had ever been anybody, you know, they all got together and and did a concert for famine relief and all that, and this was basically Marvel's Live Aid. And the the thing that I remember better about this was the very next year, I would recommend, if you like this, check out the DC version, which was called Heroes Against Hunger. Yeah, and there was actually, uh, I mentioned Blue Beetle a couple episodes back, there was an ad in that issue for that book. Ah, okay. That one, I don't remember the story so much. I mean, it was your basic, you know... Try to you know save the world you know stop salvation uh, stop uh, starvation and all that. But uh, what I remember about that one was just you know the same thing as far as the talent that they got to work on the book because it had a gorgeous Neil Adams cover on it, and then just everybody who who had ever been anybody in comics contributed to that as far as the art and the interior and i, I imagine the the x-men one was pretty much the the same type of deal yeah i know i've thumb, thumbed through that x-men one i just can't remember if i ever actually read it or not but oh, you yeah, need, good, yeah you good need choice. you need to read it because I, I really enjoyed it so i think you would and i like the x-men of that of that era you know that was uh you know i, I like the the lineup of characters that they had at that time i liked the the incarnations of the characters at that time before you know because some of them really mutated wildly after that you know i liked rogue much better back in this early era when she was basically you know she had acquired the 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 powers and some of the personality of miss marvel and stuff like that and yeah it was just this this was the era of of x-men that i think was my personal favorite so yeah i'll have to go back and check that out it'd be something of a of a walk down memory lane i'm sure although i never cared for magneto being one of the x-men i think he was their leader for a while if i'm not mistaken yeah, he might have been in this issue. I, I can't really remember exactly, but he might have been in that position. Yeah, something happened. At, I think this is when Charles Xavier basically abandoned Earth to go be like the consort of Lalandra and all that crap and and uh, Magneto for whatever the hell reason I've never quite understood Suddenly, you know, here's their greatest enemy, you know, the guy who's tried to destroy them a million times. You know, who does who does Charles Xavier leave the X-Men in the hands of but, you know, Magneto who suddenly becomes in and he goes from being this evil bad guy to like their benevolent schoolmaster. It was just, I don't know, I thought it was really silly, but I don't know. I can't remember the whole reasoning behind it now other than I just thought it was a bad move. But then later on he, he you know, was restored and showed his true colors and became a bad guy again. So way to go, Magneto. <laughs> All right. Does that wrap this one up, Scott? I think so. Yeah, that was a good choice. I, I liked uh, I liked that one. Yeah, we went Marvel on this episode. Oh, totally. Nice. Totally. Well, I, well one thing, I don't know if we've, we've – uh, 
disclose this or not, but we don't ever know what we have. You know, we I don't know what your pick is, and you don't know what my pick is. So, you know, these are totally at random. So, yeah, we wound up with an all-marvel just by dumb luck. I like that. That's pretty cool. Yes, I do as well. That concludes this episode of Back to the Bins. Please send all feedback to backtothebins at gmail.com. All feedback is appreciated. Back to the Bins is an Alec Berry, Scott Gardner production, copyright 2009. Please join us again next time when we will go back. Back to the Bins. Back to the Bins.